Previously on Story Logical. <laughs> this is Story Logical, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. So the first story we're going to talk about this week is uh, my pick, which is Carmen Maria Machado's The Husband Stitch, which came out in Granta in 2014. Um, and has been reprinted pretty much everywhere. Uh, just recently, it came. It was on Podcastle, and uh, even if you're not into having stories read to you on podcasts, I totally recommend the performance on Podcastle. I I didn't write down the the narrator's name, unfortunately, but her delivery is perfection. So I'm just going to get right into it. I'm going to tell you. Not you, because you've read it, but I'm going to tell you, readers, what it's about, in case you haven't read it. Hopefully they have. Hopefully they have. Hopefully are... hopefully you're not just listeners, you are readers. <laughs> we keep telling you, we keep calling you readers. It is one of those scientific experiments we're doing. Yeah, to see if see if they suddenly become <laughs> magically... You notice I said it is one of the scientific experiments <laughs> we're doing. Oh my god, what other experiments are you doing on me? Um... So The Husband Stitch is the story of a girl with a green ribbon tied around her neck. It follows her relationship with a boy from their first meeting through the marriage, through childbirth and through the kid growing up and going off to college. But that is, you know, okay, a summary of the plot, but that is the the least of what it is and what it's about and how how kind of emotionally vibrant it is. It It is beautiful in the way that it digs into the kind of the physicality and emotion of their relationship right it really kind of puts you right inside the sensations of the narrator of her desire of her passion of her fear uh and and also and this small part of herself that she protects so she has this green ribbon around her neck and she won't let her partner touch it it's the only thing pretty much that's forbidden to him. And yet time and again, over the years, he comes back to it, wanting to touch it, wanting to know what it's about. Um, and it's just this one part that she wants to keep for herself right up until the end of the story. And I won't spoil what happens in the last few lines, but it is powerful and beautiful and oh, amazing. Uh, a bit like Titanic. I feel like you can't spoil the ending of the story because the story <laughs> of the green ribbon is a very, very old story. And what happens when you untie the ribbon from the woman's neck in that story is what happens when you untie the ribbon from this woman's neck. But I feel I think that it must be a story that is way more famous in America because I, I had never heard of it. And obviously I know all English folk tales. <laughs> I see. I see. And have you have you gone back and read it now? Yes, I have. I read a version. It was only about four lines long. It was like, it was like these two people, they're in a relationship and he always wants to untie the ribbon and then one day he does and her head falls off. I, I, I don't remember it only being four lines long, but it's possible. Um, something that you said about how we're right inside the sensations of this woman, I thought very apt because, you know, what this story reminded me of. <laughs> Go on. Uh, didn't actually, but uh, when we, you and I, watched mm-hmm. Little Miss Sunshine recently... Uh, I remember after we watched it that you pointed out how everyone in the story uh, has their has their own dream, their own their own want that is external to the family, except for the mother. 
And I was like, well, you know, she felt real. You know, I could imagine my mom trying to hold our family together. And as one story, I loved it. Uh, but as you have pointed out before, like as, as one of countless stories where a mother is allowed nothing but motherhood, I saw your sadness. And I felt like something in the husband's stitch, the woman in the story, the only thing that she does, the only role that she plays externally in the story is to be someone's daughter and then, and then to be someone's lover and then to be someone's mother. Hmm. And what? And as soon and, as the motherhood is open... Uh, is open is, as soon as her motherhood is over and her kid goes off to college that's her undoing her right and that's her yeah but what makes this story special what makes it not little miss sunshine is is that you're right inside the sensations so you are so deeply inside the lived experience of the woman and this woman is given a voice and is given interiority and is given wants and is given desires that are physically embodied in her in the way that uh, the way that Carmen describes them, that, that pulls you in, makes you love and know this person in a way that, say, the girl in the four-line story with the ribbon around her <laughs> neck. Yeah, she, uh, she doesn't get much empathy. You don't. So, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, this is exactly... Like, Carmen's story is the exact opposite of Little Miss Sunshine in this way, in that it calls out... <laughs> it's on a page. <laughs> or, but it calls out the way society does that to women, the way the way it says no matter... Like, a woman has to play these roles in life and she has no validity beyond the role she plays for the men in her life. I When I read this, I get so angry for every time I've kept my mouth shut or every time I've gone along with something that a guy has said or every time that I have not pointed out when some some guy in my life has been wrong or overbearing and it just makes me it just makes it want to burst out of my chest uh oh, so yeah, angry. yeah yeah and I think I think some of that anger I think some of that anger comes from I don't remember if you said this in the podcast where we talked about the philosophers a while back or if it's something that we figured out after, which was that you felt like that philosopher's story that was in The New Yorker that featured, for the most part, only men, that that story and the way it existed in the world was that it was like you go into the National Gallery and all the portraits there are of men. And, you know, maybe there's a room off to the side with, with a couple women in it. But it's just it just gets really tiring to keep going into a room where all the stories are of men. And if there are any women that are in that room with the men, they're always portrayed in the same few rules over and over again. Mm. And to me, part of the, the anger that comes from reading the story, the good anger, mm. is that is that the, the story that the woman tells in the story, her experience, is, is, it is littered throughout with her telling us other stories of women yeah. over and oh, over God. again. Stories that range as far from old folk tales, a bit like the ribbon story, though never the ribbon story, uh, all the way up to little stories like like ghost and horror stories that, that seem pulled from 80s or 90s, which themselves tend to conventionally follow a very conservative idea of sex and women and what their rules are, which tend to be, uh, you know, to die yeah. Or to have sex. Those two things generally go together. Yeah. If you don't have sex, Or to you'll tear be fine. themselves apart for the men in their lives, right? Like the yeah. story that she tells about the lady who goes out to get the guy. Uh, she's eaten the liver that the guy bought for dinner, so she goes out to get, take the liver from a dead body. But then it turns out that, in fact, she's cut out her own liver in order to do it. Yeah. And it, it, when, I, when I read that and when I... 
each of these kind of ideas on their own are, are interesting and powerful, but the way Carmen weaves together the narrative of the lady at the center of the story, the stories that the lady tells, and then these little moments of breaking the fourth wall where the narrator speaks to you and says, if you're reading the story out loud, um, you know, read it in this way. And she she says, uh, she describes what kind of voice you should use. If you, you know, use this kind of voice for my voice, all other women interchangeable with my own. And when I read that, I get this fire in my chest that just burns so bright. Like, in all of the beauty and the emotion and the way so much of this woman's life seems to be lived in joy and relationships with her husband and her son, but the underlying pain and subjugation of it is never far away and it demonstrates so powerfully how a woman's experience of her life is kind of deemed to be less valid than the opinion of the least of the men that are nearby like she has to justify herself and her desire over and over and over again but the men in her life just do what they want i kind of mean so the the thing the point that demonstrates that to me is the story of the girl going off with her mother to paris in this story the girl's mother falls ill and the girl goes off to find medicine and she comes back and the mother is gone and there are a couple of different endings that the 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 girl with a green ribbon tells but they all demonstrate that a woman is not trusted in her opinion or in her experience people deny that her mother ever existed they call her crazy and she wanders paris for the rest of her days you know never really believing that she is who she is because she has she has to take all these strangers accounts of her life as more real than her own experience two things that i think are really important and cool is like when you were talking about how the woman in the story has lived you know being subjugated to other men and desires what i think is fascinating is the fact that in the story the woman the woman only exists with one other man in the story we don't really see her relationship with other men and so what you're describing is exactly right the anger you get and the and the feelings of this is the way women are portrayed are through the stories that the woman and the narrator tell you that come from other places. It is the, the, the accumulation of this is who you are that surrounded her, that's kind of papered over mm -hmm. her life, which makes me think of the wallpaper. And two, that one of the things that I thought was the, the coolest narrative trick to drive home the idea of what you were talking about, about her life not seeming as important, but at the same time, you know, she seems kind of happy and she feels like the man is good. And in some ways, that's the most horrible thing is this is a good man. This He's just mm -hmm. a good man in the sense that he fits the role of a man the way mm -hmm. men are supposed to be. And he's not bad. And yet this is still sad. The cool narrative trick to me is that the woman is living the story that we know or I know and you know after about the woman with the beautiful. She is living that story. But that is the one story that she never tells mm -hmm. for herself. That that is the thing that she doesn't know because because she doesn't know the moral of her story. You know, she can't tell the story of the life that she's mm -hmm. living. She doesn't know the shape. She doesn't know why her life is tied together the way it is. She only knows that it's her life and that it belongs to her. And when she finally has to give away the one thing that does belong to her, 
that is her life and untying her life from herself, she falls apart. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the story is amazing on pretty much every level that exists, on a thematic level, on a political level, and also... I can't I can't let it go I can't let our time on it end without talking about her prose and how kind of rich and juicy it is the way she talks about emotions and sex and passion and feeling and lust and shame and how it's like wrapped into every single sentence at the foundation so I've got a, a quote here I just wanted to read as an example although again go listen to the podcast for an amazing performance um My mother invites him in for supper, and while we eat, I dig my nails into the meat of his leg. After the ice cream puddles in the bowl, I tell my parents that I'm going to walk with him down the lane. We strike off through the night, holding hands sweetly until we are out of sight of the house. I pull him through the trees, and when we find a patch of clear ground, I shimmy off my pantyhose and on my hands and knees offer myself up to him. And he just... I don't know, it feels so immediate and so rich with her feeling and longing... And I don't want to go away without maybe adding this to what I I said before, which was that part of to me what was the the genius about the way the story of the ribbon, which we know is woven into the thing, is that the the Carmen, in writing this story, has made a life for the woman in the image of that other story, and the woman dies in the image of that story. You know, she dies kind of in a reflection of someone else's story that someone else has already told. And yet this story belongs entirely to herself, herself being both the woman in the story and Carmen. They have made the story their own. And to me, that's the the genius and the heart and the terror of the story wrapped up. Beautiful. My pick for this week, Huang's Billion Brilliant Daughters by Alice Sola Kim from Lightspeed at one time or another. Alice Sola Kim recently uh, won a prize. The Whiting Prize. Or the winning prize. I don't remember if it's one T or two, but the Whiting Prize seems like a really poor prize to give to someone. <laughs> so I hope it is winning. But either way, it comes with a lot of uh, cool money and recognition. And I was really happy to see uh, that such a good writer won such a cool award that is really hopefully does not involve whitening uh huang's billion brilliant daughters is the story of a man named huang and his unfortunate relationship to time uh which is that he falls asleep and then wakes up and some amount of time passes that is not in any way the amount of time you would think is appropriate to sleeping such as three days ten years five hundred years he goes to sleep he wakes up it's a different time and somehow, every time he wakes up in, he finds himself drawn to one of his daughters, and his daughters seem drawn to him. And that is what happens in the story. And through that, she is able to she's able to to sprinkle throughout this this structure just little bits of casual brilliance and kind of flippant, gorgeous SF. More ideas than you'd imagine you could fit into such a short story. More ideas than you could imagine that you could fit into such such a short story. That is true. Ideas of <laughs> of one day he steps out of his house, steps out of his lab, and the world is underwater. One day he steps out of his house, and the world is dry. And he asks his daughter, where's the sea? And his daughter was like, oh, we put it somewhere else. 
that is part to me of the of the magic of the story is is the voice and you get some very flat expressions of very bizarre things uh that sound like the voice of a very logical scientist like one of the early lines in the story i really loved was in describing his tendency to sleep through time the narrator says this is a problem this is a problem that's not going to solve itself <laughs> and you get kind of life-changing things described in this way. Scientists discovered that the genes of the father are the ones that shorten human lifespan. Scientists decided to do something about it, <laughs> which is the moment where you realize that there are no men in the wor this world. And so in that way, as Alice Kim is taking us through all these different worlds, she's doing something that reminded me of The Forever War by Joe Haldeman. She is able to do all of this interesting political changes and society changes over and over again to make you think of this world, make you think of this world. And I thought, this is like, this is new old school SF. This is just, what if this? Well, now that we have this, what if that? <laughs> what if this happened? Wouldn't this be funny? Mm -hmm. Okay, moving on. And, and in all of those, in all mm -hmm. of those different worlds, she's demonstrated very briefly and deftly what the the humans that live in that society or in that world would be like and how uh different they would be and how unintelligible they would be to huang yeah unintelligible and often hilariously one of my favorite moments was when he thinks maybe he's not just moving forward but moving sideways because he he thinks he has confirmation of the sideways moment because he he wakes up in a world where everyone is green and then in parentheses <laughs> the narrator notes don't worry, there's still racism. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, it made me think of earlier when we were talking about pockets and a precise whimsy. This story is whimsical. It is not whimsical in the way of pockets. And it is precise, but it's not exactly precise in the way of pockets. Because in pockets, there's one thing that is strange. And in this story, there's one thing that is strange that spins out any uh, innumerable amounts of other strangeness. But what I thought, what made me think, precise whimsy is a description of the story and a description of what I love. Because it felt like in the story, anything could happen, but everything was under control. Control is exactly it. Like, you never felt like Alice was out of control in what she was writing or didn't know what she was doing. So... It's unapologetic in the way it swings wildly before between these different realities that Huang wakes up into. But each time, you're never really lost. You're never really kind of wondering what's happening because the way she describes it, the way she takes you into it, is always so precise and you feel very grounded in it. Um, and so in that way, she can get away with describing, I don't know, 20, 25 different worlds in three and a half thousand words. So the thing that really spoke to me in this story is the the way it the time the time slippage that Huang that Huang experiences as he slips through time seeing all his different daughters really kind of manifested the, the painful emotional reality that is the way your relationship changes with your parents as you grow up and they go from being this incredible important source of everything in your life through to at a certain point becoming or possibly becoming irrelevant 
And so he's sort of trailing through after his daughters, trying to insert himself into their lives and feeling disjointed, disconnected, literally of uh, another generation, another era. And oh, it made me so sad. But then, you know, that's played off against the elasticity of the relationship. Like they're drawn to each other. They can't stay away from each other. The daughters are also drawn to him. And so you have this kind of pinging effect as he bounces through time. And oh, it's just, it really broke my heart. The the disjointedness is is heartbreaking. And it is a an image hit again and again. Ideas of things that are uncrossable, unreachable, uncountable, un- unknowable. Like... This, this one beautiful thing. Sometimes the language is so beautiful. For example, when he comes into a world where the rain drifts down so gently and he gets wet so gradually that you don't even notice. It's like a frog being boiled. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then this, the, when he first wakes up, the first time he wakes up and time has advanced and his son has become a software mogul of some kind and lives in a kind of castle-ish estate red dripping down the sides i don't know why there's also a moat and he wants to get across the moat and his daughter is there and catches him is like no dad you're not going to make it you're not going to be able to cross that and then later as he as he goes on and on and the world changes he says he feels like he's trapped in a house without windows Mm. and then the thing that really partly made me the most sad was the moment when he felt like that he could no longer enumerate to himself the ways in which he had failed that his failure had turned into an exponential number residing within him, sleek and unutterably dense and deadly. All of that to me was captured in this one phrase he said a few times, which was, there was no backwards to this forwards. Yeah. That the, the disjointedness would not go away, that there would be no way to go back to the life he had where his three daughters were at their, what he described as kind of their most immutable and precocious brilliance. Yeah. Uh so so great. The 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 moment when the story really leapt for me was the moment where it it looks like a, it looks like initially it's just um a narrator without personality, but then the narrator makes herself known to the reader and then you begin to understand that the story is being told by one of Huang's very far future daughters. And that is what allows it to have an ending and a resolution that feels so sad and so beautiful and so right as this particular daughter says, I'm the one who's going to remember. I'm the one yeah. who's given your life meaning. I'm the one who will make all of this, uh, record it all for posterity. Yeah, and to give it to us. And yeah, the the, the narrator was something I wanted to talk about. I'm glad you brought it up because... Um, that reveal of who the narrator in slips in slowly. And so at the beginning, there are just lines, like when she is describing Hong's dissolution of marriage, as well as his daughters being kidnapped by somebody. Oops. Uh, the narrator says, I wish there was someone to blame. And then later, the, you get the, the narrator saying, I will live forever. But marriage between Hong and I is out of the question. <laughs> and you begin to think, oh, okay. Um, who are you? And then I love how the, the narrator is in the story such to the point that, that you, before you know that it's his daughter, you get the narrator saying things like, Hong needs to understand this. Like the narrator has clearly 
more investment in Huang's character than seems right for a narrator. They seem yeah. to be involved. And just just before the moment where it's revealed that it's his daughter, the the thing the thing that the narrator's voice reminded me of was this old Looney Tunes cartoon, Duck and Muck, which uh, if you haven't seen it, readers or Emma, you need to go watch it because say, say the name again, Duck Amuck. No, I have not seen that. Uh, it is a story about Daffy Duck, and a lot of strange things happen to him in this cartoon. But the most strange is that he has a relationship with the animator. Like, he is yelling at the animator, why are you putting me in these situations? And the animator is, like, erasing his bill so he can't speak. Like, the narrator is in control of Daffy's story. And at the end, you pull back, and it's Bugs Bunny sitting at the drafts table, like, drawing this cartoon and fucking with him. And while that is not the case here, the daughter isn't, you know, fucking with Hong necessarily. Uh, it had the essence to me of a narrator in control of someone else's story, trying, trying to to get something out of it. Uh, it was very sad when she said that she tried to give him a reality. Yeah. I presume like a virtual construct, yeah, but like the wouldn't. world that he came from. But yeah, he wouldn't. He wouldn't go for it. He wouldn't yeah. believe it. Yeah, he, accept it. Not only would he not go for it, he stomped the world until it swirled and he sank into it and was like, nope, there's no backwards from this <laughs> forwards. I'm not buying this. Um, but your talk of Daffy Duck and stories that it reminds, me of, reminds you of, for me, it made me think of one of Carmen's other stories, 272 Views of Law and Order, because that too is these tiny fragments of story which aren't, necessarily directly connected but all build up to this kind of emotional release at the end that somewhat takes you by surprise actually um and i i love the way in which both of those stories do that so effectively yeah i think one of my my most lasting lessons from the story is one that i've probably learned before but i enjoy learning it again and again is that whatever the magic of your story is whatever the 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 construct is so in this case in this case the most rubbish time travel imaginable really um that the magic that is in your story should always work not for but against your characters yeah you just drop the mic yes uh i'm not actually going to drop the mic they're expensive (laughs) turning the page Thanks for listening, readers. This <laughs> podcast is supported by nothing. <laughs> but our love for short stories. If you would like to show support for Storylogical, here are some things you can do. If you have enjoyed it at all, please, readers, look us up on iTunes and leave us some of your love there in the shape of a review. So that more people can find us and share in what is clearly, at this point, the greatest podcast ever created by the two people you're listening to right now. We'll put a link in the show notes to our podcast page. Number two, as always, it is unlikely we can discuss every story that has ever been written in the universe. Although we're going to try, I think. Make that our life's ambition. Eventually, you guys just, just go to sleep, wake up, another five years gone by, and there'll be another 200 episodes for you to listen to. But if we haven't talked about the stories that you're loving at the moment, then let us know on Twitter. We are at Storyological, which is... Story. Like the word. Oh. Like the Large Hadron Collider. And logical. Like the plot to Back to the Future. 
you can follow Emma on Twitter at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter at Kuvols, C-U-V-O-L-S. And you can also find links to all of our random references and our previous episodes. As well as appropriate gifts and to subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast. At our home on the web. At Storylogical.com. See you next week. Happy reading. It helps when you turn your microphone on. Flash. Uh-huh.